Hey everyone, and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that spotlights individuals who are changing the way that data is used to deliver better customer experiences. I'm your host, Ben Cicchetti, and for this episode, our VP of Sales, Stuart Coleman, is back, and this time he's sitting down with Karen Eccles, Senior Director of Commercial Innovation at The Telegraph. During this session, Stu and Karen discuss the challenges publishers are facing with the loss of third-party cookies, how The Telegraph is going to use the extra time provided by Google, the role of replacement identifiers, and their first-party data solution powered by Infosum, Unity. Before I hand over to Stu, just a quick reminder to hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy podcasts. But now, without any further delay, let's jump into their conversation. Great, and welcome everybody to the Identity Architects podcast. Um, I'm joined today by Karen and from The Telegraph. Really pleased that Karen's joining us today. Um, Karen's one of those people I've known for some time. Um, it's always a joy speaking to her. Her knowledge is great. I always learn um, when I'm speaking to her. So I'm really pleased that she's here and we get to ask her a bunch of questions and kind of get some of that knowledge out of her brain to share with you all. Um, Karen, I'm going to let you kind of introduce yourself to start with. Hi, thanks so much, Stu, for asking me to join. And uh, hi, everyone. I'm really pleased to be here and uh, slightly worried about that knowledge and whether I've actually got any and whether I'm going to speak it today. But let's uh, let's see, I'll do the best I can. Um, so, yeah, my, my name is Karen Eccles um, and I am the Senior Director of Commercial Innovation at The Telegraph. Um, so if anyone doesn't know The Telegraph, it's a very long established, uh, over 160 year old British news brand. Um, and I joined the Telegraph around four years ago at that time to be a digital sales director. But at the same time, the Telegraph was embarking on a subscriptions first strategy. So quite quickly, my job became what do we do when we're not an advertising scale model and when the advertising needs to supplement a subscription strategy. So my job has been all about building the products, the narrative um, and the measurement uh, that fits beneath a sub-strategy. Um, and uh, I've still got the innovation team who uh, have been building that with me, plus all of our commercial digital um, team work with me as well. Brilliant. So super busy then. Kind of ish, <laughs> yes. There's always something to do. Yeah. <laughs> something to worry about always. <laughs> Definitely. Good. Well, I'm really looking forward to kind of um, getting into that bit with you as we kind of go through. We're going to talk a little bit about kind of what's going on at the moment around this kind of cookie-less future and, and some of the challenges that, that exist and some of the opportunities that, that are coming out of that. And we'll talk a bit about that. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about how brands and media owners and their relationship might evolve over the kind of the coming uh, few months and, and couple of years as we kind of move to this kind of first-party-driven world. Um, I'm definitely going to ask you about Telegraph Unity, which um, I know you'll be keen to talk about as we uh, as we kind of work through this. But let's start right at the beginning with um, what's going on around this kind of cookie-less future and this kind of uh, all-encompassing statement around um, the way the, the world is evolving. Um, there's a lot of companies out there kind of pushing solutions and pushing ways of working without third-party cookies, whether that be universal IDs or whether that be the use of first-party data in clean rooms or other forms of creating connectivity. I'm keen to get your thoughts on that space generally. And specifically, do you think we'll end up in a world where there might be one or two solutions or are we going to end up with a smorgasbord of, of um, ways of working in the space? It's a lovely, tiny question to start with. <laughs> Sorry, we, we might as well start where we're going to go. So. Let's start, let's start there. Um, so I think um, 
just putting in context or starting from what I know which is um the telegraph and how we've been approaching this because we um started the subs strategy and started thinking about everything in terms of engagement and logged in users rather than scale and passerby traffic we were kind of forced to start thinking about this quite early on. So, you know, around about two and a half years ago, which didn't feel early on and clever two and a half years ago, it felt <laughs> quite scary. And, what are we doing? We're going crazy. Like, oh my God, what's happening? Um, but it meant that we had to think about, you know, some monetizing our um, our assets as a publisher and what would we have in the future? And um, that was, you know, logged in users and engagement and time spent in those kind of things rather than an ad model built on, you know, scale and um, and impressions. So we've had quite a lot of time to think about this and really to uh, conclude that the current model doesn't work for advertisers and it doesn't work for publishers and it really, you know, rewards the wrong things. So it encourages content makers, which I think are different to publishers, to, um, you know, try to just, you know, game as bigger big numbers of impressions as possible um, in order to drive revenues and this ecosystem has built um, up and third-party data and third-party cookies have fueled it where we've ended up with this crazy place where advertisers are spending so much money on sort of you know it feels a bit like punching yourself in the face you know kind of fighting (laughs) the system that you're investing in because if you're going to invest in that system via the open marketplace for example then you have to also spend so much money on, you know, policing it and making sure it's safe and um, uh, and human and and uh, and all of those things. Yep. So my hope is that we use this point in time now to redefine the direction that the industry had gone in, and we have a sort of once in a generation chance, I think, to rewrite things. So for me, it would be a real shame if we took this opportunity and just tried to replace the, the third party cookie with an alternative solution that, that does the same thing. Um, so I'd hope that we end up with the smorgasbord approach with a you know v- variety of approaches, but mainly something that works better than cookies because we're talking about the demise of a cookie as if it's a you know a wonderful and flawless thing, <laughs> which it, it really no, isn't. You know, no. it's 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 not a perfect solution as it is. You know, it's less than robust. We don't always know where the data comes from. It's often out of date. Um, and it's based on a piece of code, not, you know, not people um, and not necessarily their current behaviour. So, um, you know, for us, we think if we can take stock now as an industry and think about how we'd like it to work in the future rather than repeating something that we think has been quite flawed from the past, then that would be a result. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. The thing I would, I actually read an article yesterday that said one of the challenges historically of the industry is, we focused on control of data rather than trust within data. And I do think you know, companies like Telegraph and, and the ways that you're looking to work, um, I think a really important part of that evolution could be that we get to build some of that trust, whether that's trust between um, you know, media owners or content creators or, or entities that talk to consumers and the consumers, or whether that's um, between companies that are operating in that space. Building that trust into data usage, I think, could be a really good outcome from all of this. But... I guess we'll see, won't we? But it seems to be an important part of it. We will. That's uh, that's um, interesting. We've been talking about uh, trust and purpose a lot. Um, and it's so important, that trust. It's not just trust about, you know, use of people's data, but also their trust in what's written and why. And is it regulated? And is it true or false? Is it fake? Yep. Is it there just so that it can harvest impression and sell, you know, sell it cheap? 
Um, or is it actually, you know, fact checked? Is it true? All of these things are so important. And the digital advertising world is funding or not funding all of that content that exists. Yeah. A lot of the time, a lot of the time it's there just so that advertising, you know, revenues can be made off the back of it. Um, so I think it's really important that we build that trust up again and also that we just try and do the right thing. Absolutely. And and talking about trust, um, let's talk about Google. Um, uh, obviously, we seem to be um, using this deprecation of the third party cookie, um, Google's deprecation of the third party cookie as the catalyst for that change. Um, and they've just delayed that. Um, how long for remains to be seen. I think you know, they've set a date sometime in 2023, but that could move up or down and we don't really know. But um, it'd be good to get a sense from you. you know, we've, I guess we've got a little bit of extra time now to kind of think through and, and work through the right approaches and make sure that the answer that we have coming out the other side is robust. So how do you kind of plan on using that kind of additional time? Is there anything that you're going to do differently or you're all kind of full steam ahead with, with the current approaches? Um, and I guess the question that, that talking to the industry in general is, uh, is there a concern or a fear that others, whether they be other media owners or other technology companies, will just kind of stick their head in the sand and you know, use up that additional time doing exactly what they do right now? Um, Probably. Let's hope like, <laughs> not, but it sounds it sounds entirely like it. I think so. Um, I think again because because we 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 had to. We were sort of in a, a position where we had to think about all of this stuff quite early. We we were looking at the difference in our average yields <clears throat> across the browsers. So Apple had already introduced IPP two point three. Yep in September 19, I think, which seems like a really long time ago now, but relatively isn't, I guess. Um, and at that point, we could see a, a big difference in um, the value of our yield on Chrome versus on you know, Safari, for example. And it was really interesting because as publishers, you don't normally see the value of your of what the ecosystem knows about your um uh, inventory and and the data that you know kind of you know, can be uh, attached to it and, and monetized. So it gave us an idea of the that kind of delta between the value of um, inventory that was having third party data applied and um, and where it wasn't on Safari. And it was it was fairly big. It was it was forty to fifty percent wow. back then, and that that was a couple of, of years ago. Yep. So in some ways, when the Google made their announcement, we you know for us it it couldn't come quick enough that we could. Um, start working to do something differently and to rebuild um, because this is an issue that does need to be fixed urgently and we feel ready and delaying just prolongs this sort of decaying system that doesn't sufficiently value privacy or premium publisher environments but on the other hand I really think it is only the, the most advanced and the really early adopting brands that are ready and even for some of them because of big corporate you know, companies, they've got to go through so much in terms of InfoSec and compliance and um, their own, you know, kind of legal systems. Even if they're moving quickly, it takes them a long time uh, to be ready. So I suppose for that reason, it's a good thing. And I think it gives the, the brands that weren't early adopters um, who are going to be slower. We, we kind of had this false start yeah. where I think everybody has given it their attention now. I don't think it's something that's not on people's radars that they've not heard about, but they've got um, hopefully a year or two if they start acting now to be ready in time. Um, so I feel like there are brands who have, that we're talking to, put their foot off the gas, but most of them, once they've started on this journey, I think they're continuing it. 
Um, and maybe if anything, they don't feel compelled to sign up to a proxy solution um, because they feel like something's going to drop. You know, it's like Y2K again. They're probably going to drop <laughs> off, the end, off the end of a cliff yeah. at the end of this year. So they're not forced to make a decision that they might otherwise not make. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we definitely think, you know, there's still a sense of urgency because it's going to take a long time to get the right you know, systems and, and legals in place for big advertisers. So arguably Google are perhaps done us a favour, we've done the industry a favour by um, forcing us into the journey and starting the journey and then giving us uh having forced us into it a bit of time to actually do it properly um and approach it with with less kind of immediate pressure and make it more of a um long-term move i guess i guess that could be one view of it um yeah i think i'd agree with that um as long as i think the sense of urgency needs to prevail because there's so much that we all need to sort out there's so many you know, tests and fails that we need to do to learn. Um, and you want clients engaging with that now, really, rather than yep. waiting till, you know, the drop of midnight yeah. in a couple of years' time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so on that theme, and obviously I build you at the start to be in the front of all knowledge when it comes to uh, to the world of publishing, so here's your time to shine. <laughs> um, if there were three things that you would recommend to any publisher they should be doing in the next 18 months, what would those three things be? Um, I think it's only from my perspective um, sorry course, i should but, i should caveat that uh, with um obviously one of them is work with infosum sorry i should say that at the start <laughs> that's the that's a given obviously do i still get three on top of that <laughs> no yeah you three more <laughs> <laughs> um so first of all i'd say build your logged in user base and focus on engaged audiences and not passerby traffic so advertising is and will continue to be a really important revenue source for publishers yep. Um, but it's super important that rather than devaluing inventory and trying to get into a, a race to scale, that honestly, we're, we're just not going to win. And the gap between the scale in publishing and scale in platforms is only going to widen. So what, what we have is we have audiences that love and trust uh, and connect to our editorial. So knowing who those audiences are, um, but most importantly, you know, making sure that those audiences are coming back and they're logging in regularly so that we understand what they read, what they care about. Yep. Um, that's really important. Gathering registrations or newsletter signups just for their own sake isn't the same thing. It's, it's no good if you, you know, get an email sign up, but you don't see that person come back you know, within, within three months. So the regular kind of logged in base is um, first absolute key, I think. And from there, there are so many other you know, kind of products that you can build out, including with InfoSum, of course. Um, um, and then secondly which is kind of linked to that is diversifying revenue especially outside the open marketplace so I think any publishers who have um, uh, you know a a high percentage of their commercial revenue coming from the open marketplace or a high percentage of their their ad revenue uh, coming there need to look and see how they, they can diversify and reopen up direct conversations with brands um, and make sure they're valuing their inventory in the right way. So, you know, that might mean reducing the amount of advertising um, on site and thinking about the kind of formats and whether they yep. fit the environment, but really building out an ad proposition that works for you as a publisher rather than to serve the demand of the OMP, because the current system and the yields in that system are only going to go in one direction, yep. I think, yep. which is it's downwards. Yeah. Um, and then my third one would be to put a really high value on your customer, the relationship with your customer or readers, um, and understanding how effective it is if brands can tap into that, that you don't 
you know, you don't compare it with open marketplace inventory, for example, you don't actually need that kind of scale. Um, so put a really high value on it. And I don't mean just, you know, 10 or 20% more valuable. It's, you know, several times more valuable. Um, and then guard that data and your customers' privacy fiercely because that relationship, I believe, belongs to, you know, the, the reader, the customer and to the publisher um, and no one else. So a publisher needs to be very aware of anything they're entering into that's using their customer data, making sure it's not leaking, making sure that that, that trust is, you know, very much safeguarded. Um, and then making sure that anything you do off the back of that doesn't rely on scale, but relies on effectiveness. And that's where the, the value comes from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does that makes sense. I feel like yeah. I might have said that backwards. No, no, it makes perfect <laughs> sense. And, and, and that last point, I think, is really, really important. If you look at some of the um, kind of movement around the industry, particularly things like the ICO calling out the amount of data that flows through a programmatic, kind of open programmatic world, and that being an issue, um, we, we talk a lot at Infosum about what we call this trust triangle, essentially saying you've got the trust that exists between the media owner and the brand, trust that exists between the brand and the consumer, and trust that exists between the consumer and the media owner. And they kind of connect on this triangle. And unless all three parties are happy and feel like their trust is being respected or, or is established, it's going to fall down. And I, you, I would agree wholeheartedly with you on that last point, which is some of the ways of working historically have broken that trust triangle. Yeah. And that's caused some of the, you know, the, the kind of holes that we've ended up in, I guess. Yeah, I agree completely. We we talk about something similar or think about it in a similar way, which is that in the transaction that includes identity, there are only three parties, and that is the the reader or the, the person, the human at the centre of it, the publishing brand and the advertiser, if they get that right. Yeah. And nobody else should be profiting um, you know, from that relationship and it needs to have equal value for everyone and the customer needs to understand what the value is that they're getting, whether it's fantastic content that they don't have to pay five times the subscription for because it's, you know, kind of co-funded by advertising. But that all needs to be really clear. And ad technology doesn't feature in that triangle. It needs to um, enable it to work, but shouldn't be profiting, you know, somewhere on the side out of that. So yeah. I think that's the thing we need to correct. Yeah, absolutely. And um, um, moving on to the next question, uh, but building on that a bit, you know, one of the kind of, I guess, ways of looking at it is to say that historically, the role of technology companies within that mix, and, and that's a very broad spectrum of, of companies involved in, in the monetization of advertising, um, there's, there's been a lot of control in that space. And really, that probably needs to move to a role of facilitation rather than control. Yeah. Because, as you right say, the control and the, and the trust should sit with the with those three entities. Um, that probably, therefore, would see uh, brands and media owners perhaps coming closer together and working more collaboratively together and having a more direct relationship. Um, just keen to get your thoughts on how you think that might evolve over the next kind of 18, 24 months, how you might engage more directly with brands, how the role of first-party data might help shape some of those discussions. Yeah, that's um, that's a really interesting area, and we've been um, we've been thinking a lot more about this. I mean, our, our agencies are um, incredibly important. I've got a team of of great people who um, you know rep all of the the major agencies, but we're increasingly talking. Um, it's a three way conversation with the advertiser as well, and often you know direct with the advertiser about understanding their customer base. Yep. So I think the way that we'll see it evolve is 
working together with advertisers and where, where I'd like it to go so that we can start understanding our mutual customers together. So if you think about the Telegraph as an example, publisher, our readers, if they're subscribing, if they're paying subscribers and that they're spending um, you know, time every day logged into the Telegraph, they are our customers and really we're a customer business rather than a media business in that sense. Um, and if we can use technology like Invisum, for example, to work with brand to understand our mutual customers together, it means that we can start thinking about our partnership with that brand rather than them briefing us and it being about ads targeting or producing content that matches um, a client's brief. It's about us seeing how we can augment their understanding of their own customers. So what do we know about their customers' passion points, their habits, their lean-in moments, when they spend the most time, when they, um, you know, kind of are triggered to, to, to sort of go, go on an onward journey or kind of read more articles, and then write a brief together um, based on that mutual audience's passion points. Um, and there, I think from there, we can start building proper partnerships with brands that are based on what their customers really care about when they're on the Telegraph. And that's got to be better um, than any brief that's generic that is sent out to a you know kind of a wide group of media owners. And of course, we're partners in the, um, the Ozone project. So for all programmatic, we have the ability for advertisers to um, you know, by uh, via a, a platform across all of the, the Ozone publishers. Yep. So that option of the programmatic activation is still there. But I think what's interesting for me is the direct conversations that we're having with brands and how we can change their, their understanding of their customers and the kind of activity that they book with us direct. Yeah, I, I agree, again, wholeheartedly with that. I think um, this isn't about replacing technology companies. This isn't about replacing agencies. Their their role and their value is is still very significant but it does create as you're suggesting opportunity to have uh, a broader or or um more uh partnership-led discussion with a brand where you're actually creating value not just from showing an ad it's it's about knowledge it's about learning it's about um, enrichment it's about um environment and creating opportunities to engage that extend beyond the, the you know, kind of the standard ads and i think that can only be a really positive thing i can't see any negative in that at all um, no, and I think you know, Telegraph in particular is in a really fortunate position of having a great editorial environment, a you know, trusted environment, a loyal readership base, and you were early to the, uh, um, the party in terms of kind of you know, capturing that information and, and you know, subscribers and registered users. So I think uh, you know, definitely a bright future ahead for, uh, for everything you're doing. Um, on that, just um, kind of playing on that theme and also the theme a little bit of, of kind of um, how you build trust with your consumers. Um, if you know, I'm a Telegraph reader, if you were to stop me in the street and we would have a conversation about um, my data, um, how would you kind of explain um, uh, to a, a customer Telegraph how that data is used, why it kind of creates that kind of better customer experience, why it's an important part of the relationship that you have with them? I think I'm a terrible person to answer this question because I've never been, I've never been able to explain to my mum what I do. It's just ads. <laughs> what on earth is it? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so to be careful, I'm not the um, owner of Telegraph customer data or, you know, how we use it for um, editorial development, but I can, I can give it a go. Yep. Um, so I, I think the first thing is that we, we think about our customers um, in sets of, of like-minded people who we try to understand. 
so we don't think of it in terms of you know kind of stalky you know sort of one-to-one or you know hyper personalized um targeting um it's more about segments and cohorts of people yep. and understanding what's in, what interested them and, and and how they behave so in terms of those segments and cohorts we we want to know what they want to read more of you know what makes them decide to subscribe obviously because that's our you know kind of mainly how we're funded what makes them want to come back once they subscribe what makes that subscription valuable to them you know why would they spend more time what do they want to see you know kind of how their onward um, journeys unfurl what recommendations um, are right for them and if we weren't able to use data to make some of those decisions then either the website or app would be harder for them to navigate to what they really want to read um, or we would either be sending them a bunch of you know, newsletters and emails, for example, that aren't relevant to them, or we'd be sending them none and they'd be missing out on things that they, they really want to know about. <laughs> yep. So kind of that, that, that understanding just enables us to, and it's not, I think the, the key is it's not hyper-personalised and I don't necessarily think it should be, um, but it just enables us to give them you know, more of what they want, Be- bearing in mind that news brands now publish a huge amount per day on so many different platforms that it'd be really hard for somebody to come into that and find, you know, what they really want to spend time with, what they really want to read without any you know, use of data to kind of put recommendations um, in front of them. Um, so all of that helps inform the editorial team's, uh, you know, understanding of, of, of what direction to go and what type of content and how it's um, presented. Yep. And then I suppose the other side of that is that we are a subscriber brand, but without advertising, we'd need to charge this person that I've imaginarily stopped in the street, we need to charge them <laughs> more per, per subscription or we'd have to um, dilute the Telegraph's content so that we could reach, you know, way more paying subscribers. So supplementing um, our revenue with advertising um, and using data enables us to build segments based on um, people's interests so that we can serve them the right ad. And again, without being able to do that, we would have to have a model where we have, you know, eight competing ads per page, all of them hoping that they they might be relevant and, you know, kind of, but, but really disrupting the user experience. Yep. So we use data to, you know, be able to deliver a better user experience, but one that supplements their, their subscription um, as well and, you know, allows us to, to, to charge them a more reasonable price point. Yeah. All of this with a disclaimer that I'm not in charge of any describing use of data. <laughs> always got to start with a disclaimer. But I, I think that makes a lot yeah. of sense. And I think um, you do yourself a disservice when you say you can't explain it. I think if, if you did have a conversation on the street with someone, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and it's about creating individual value, about creating individual um, uh, kind of knowledge within their their relationship with you. And I think that's a positive thing. And I think most people in a reasoned discussion would would you know, take that on board. If that's built on top of all the stuff you've already spoken about, about creating trust, about respect and privacy, yeah. about establishing a way of working that puts the consumer at the heart of it, I think um, you know, I think that story is a good story and I think we, we should be telling more of it. Um, so no, I, I think uh, it's a good answer. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Uh, I'd love to know a bit more about Telegraph Unity. Obviously, it's the product that, that you launched what, 18 months or so ago now, I think. Um, and seems to be going um, really well on market. Um, love to learn a bit more about it, um, how brands can engage with Telegraph Unity, um, what kind of things can they do with it, um, and what makes it unique in market. It'd be great if you could share a bit of more information about that. Wonderful, thank you. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we started working with InfoSum, I think it must have been 18 months ago, is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, it, it feels it feels yeah. about right. Just before lockdown, I think. Yes, it was. Um, and uh, last year was really the year of um, a, a sort of suite of products that we call Telegraph One. Um, uh, so that was our big focus commercially last year, and that was all about bringing together all of our first-party data um, and insights. And as part of that, looking at where the gaps were and what products we wanted to be building out next. So this time last year, actually, it was, it was only last summer. Um, it was in the, the middle of that kind of weird non-lockdown <laughs> that we had for about, about six weeks. Um, we launched Unity and it was the same time um, as we turned off um, the use of any third party data for targeting. So yep. we made an announcement saying we're only using first party data now um, and launched Unity at the same time. So um, what uh, Unity is, is just our, our brand name for InfoSum. Um, actually, we'd launched the product about three months earlier, but we, it took us about three months, Camilla Child, who's our amazing director of data strategy and me, took us about three months to realise that when we were talking to the sales team and clients about our brilliant data matching product, <laughs> that it'd be better if we gave it a name and a logo. Um, and so after about three months of going, why isn't this, why is this not catchy? Um, we, we launched Unity and it really did make a difference. It just show, shows the, the benefit of, of product marketing. Yep. Um, but essentially what um, Unity was doing was solving our question about how we could um, build um, a future with brands that was based on our mutual first party data but didn't require anyone to do anything that would make us nervous in time in terms of security um, and privacy um, or would make our customers, you know, our readers or, or the brand's customers nervous if they knew about it. So, so the prerequisite was this has to be absolutely secure and we don't want to share any data. We don't want to share hashed emails. We don't want to share anything because the securest way of looking after our customer data is just not to do any of that. So we had quite a hard um, a hard rule about that yep. um, and what we liked about the InfoSum product was the fact that everyone can upload their data into bunkers um, and I think we've had meetings Stu where everyone said bunkers about 15 times <laughs> it's all started feeling a bit surreal <laughs> sorry <laughs> about that <laughs> I'm not saying bunkers or bunkers after all, but um, is that both, both parties, and it doesn't have to be just two parties, it could be more, but um, both parties upload their data into bunkers. And then there's this idea of the um, deliberate error that's introduced, which makes us feel very secure and the clients feel very secure that uh, there can be no reverse engineering. There's no potential of a data breach. And we know this because I think in one of our early tests with InfoSum, we uploaded data into a bunker um, and then had trouble manipulating some of the data. And somebody kind from InfoSum had to come into our offices and look over Camilla's shoulder uh, in order to help us. So kind of it was a really nice test to know there was absolutely no way. And we've had you know, a lot of our most scrupulous kind of product people kick the tires and we, we know it's absolutely 100% secure. Yep. But then uh, what happens is there's um, um, a, a matches run um, and that gives us what we think of like a, an X-ray um, of that data. So it's not comparing or, or mixing actual data sets, but gives us an understanding of the crossover between those two sets. Um, and from there, there's a load of really interesting stuff that, um, that we can do. So the, the first one is that we can match data, data sets and we can understand how a, a pool of mutual customers with a brand change over time. We can understand the volume of our match data and we can understand the value of it, um, of, of those um, customers to a brand. 
and then that becomes a very robust uh, seed data set for modeling. So it's the, the best and most effective seed data set for modeling we've ever seen. And I can give you an example of this, which is when we ran an early campaign um, with a, a big advertiser last the end of last year. Yeah. Our trade marketing director, I hope doesn't mind me saying, was alarmed. <laughs> I'd say at the size of the um, activation that we were we, we were we were launching with, because he was kind of I thought this was going to give us enormous scale. I thought this was going to be you know kind of I thought this was going to deliver this. And for a moment, I was a bit kind of like, oh yes, you know, this feels a little bit a little bit nerve wracking because it was a smaller activation than we'd be used to. But the results of that uh, test were was it was so effective. It was five to six times um, the benchmark of what we'd normally see, which we considered to be effective as is. Um, and that was it. Just blew everything else we'd ever done out of the water. So we started to understand that the scale um, of activation isn't what's important. It's the quality and that effectiveness. Um, the other the other use case um, um, uh, which we have run is suppression. So for um, clients who want to acquire new customers and suppress their existing ones, then it's a, a very neat and hugely accurate way of doing that. But as I talked about before, probably the most exciting one for us that we're starting to you know, kind of really build out different use cases for now is insight, um, because I don't think we realised until lockdown the value of the insights that publishers have yep. on the same customers that brands understand, but maybe only from a transactional perspective. Yep. Um, so uh, that's, you know, kind of we've added a, a fourth um, uh, use case. But then there are, you can almost go down rabbit holes because <laughs> there are so many different ways of cutting that up and so many different ways, depending on what the client wants to do. So I think the answer to how to work with us is just to, to brief us with a real challenge, a real business challenge. Um, and you know, let us figure that out and work with you know uh, a brand um, on it. And you know, we're still at the point where we're we're sort of bucketing different use cases and understanding um, how they work. Um, so it's a it's a really good time to I suppose be able to experiment uh, together. Yep, that makes a lot of sense, and it's great to see. I mean, you know, we're clearly happy that, that the technology is being used, but it's great to see that there's so many applications to it and so many different ways of working. And creating value, whether that's proactive targeting, but really super focused and delivering great results. If that's just about creating contextual buys that are more effective because you're not showing ads to customers, or you know, finding new ways of of uh, creating value from the knowledge that you have, I, you know, it's it's great to see and and um, speaks to um, you know, the, the great work you've done in building that audience and, and and having that that knowledge available, and then investing and engaging with technologies that can help you make the most of it. So. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to see it succeeding and, and great to hear you talk about it. So thank you. Um, I'm going to uh, throw a few quick fire questions at you, if that's OK. Um, people obviously like to know more, you know, some stuff about you as well as uh, as well as the products that you're, you're out there selling. So um, I've just got a half a dozen or so quick fire questions, um, hopefully some nice short answers. Um, so let me just rattle off a few two and see how we get on. So first of all, what's your earliest memory of advertising? I think 80s Levi's ad probably was a great soundtrack. Yeah, I, I was a nerd who was subscribing to Campaign when I was 15 or 16 because <laughs> advertising in the 80s was that great. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, I, I'm definitely a child of the 80s as well, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly <laughs> with that. We're showing our age now, but we shouldn't say that. Um, what was your first job in publishing or advertising? Uh, it was on a magazine called Creative Review at uh, Centaur Publishing, which was great actually because it was all about commercial creativity so I got to watch lots of great ads while I was there. Brilliant and uh, knowing what you know now and clearly you're very knowledgeable now 
Um, what would you say to your kind of young self back then when you were first starting? What advice would you give? Stop worrying. Upload <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all definitely give that that, that kind of feedback to ourselves, can't we? Um, what is it that you love about the industry that you're in? You can say nothing, by the way, but that's... <laughs> um, I think people, the people. I tried to be an accountant once when, when I was right at the start of my career and... Um, I couldn't stand working in isolation in a quiet room. So I love the the chaos, the teams, you know, the the, the clients we work with. Yep. Um, and just it's it's still really people-based um, industry. I think lockdowns proved that more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next question is definitely aimed at the industry, not at general life. But what keeps you awake at night? Uh, loose ends and the stuff that's not done yet, um, I okay. think. So I'm... I'm, I'm always struggling to get to a place where my to-do list is complete <laughs> and that has never ever happened and I don't think it ever will do you have a to-do list of to-do lists that's that's the meta place you yeah. need to reach yeah I'm there um, <laughs> I'll offer you advice on that <laughs> and and the flip side of that question is um, what gets you kind of motivated in the morning what makes you kind of want to get up and, and get on with work if I was being really pompous about it like my the, the high ideal of what we're doing I think is we're figuring out um the commercial model for premium publishers going forward and we think that really matters to society that regulated journalism is monetized so that's the that's the why yeah brilliant um and last quick fire question um if you were to pick a song that was the soundtrack of your life what would it be I think the one that I thought about this, and the only one that really comes to mind over and over, well, the first one was Mr. Brightside, but that's a whole different <laughs> about jealousy, so it's not that. I think La Le- on Rose by Louis Armstrong, because I think belief and optimism make things happen, and there's nothing wrong with rose-tinted glasses. Brilliant, love that. Glasses always half full. <laughs> Fabulous, thank you. Um, uh, all that really remains to me is to ask you one more question, which I'll do in a moment. Um, but first of all, to say thank you. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Um, always love speaking to you. It's always a great... Uh, uh, journey of knowledge and, and fun and um, and interest. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing with our, with our listeners as thank well. Um, final question from me. This podcast is all about individuals who have kind of pioneered and and been uh, the forefront of, of um, the industry, particularly around the use of data within the industry, and you're definitely one of those. Um, who would you like to nominate for um, one of our upcoming episodes? Lara is learner ITV. Because brains, clarity, she's a fantastic human being and she just really wants to make things better. Brilliant. Uh, so I was going to have two, but Lara, Lara's my first pick. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Really appreciate talking to you today and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, Stu. Thanks so much. That was awesome. Thank you, Karen, for joining us on Identity Architects. It was truly fascinating to hear how the Telegraph is paving a way forward in a first party, cookieless world that prioritizes the privacy of consumers. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy podcasts to find out when the next episode of Identity Architects drops. But until then, thanks for listening.